It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 259, New Testament Introduction. I'm so excited. We've finally arrived at the New Testament. Uh, this is where it's just all about Jesus. And this is the um, the Word became flesh. I'm absolutely thrilled, guys. So in the next episode, we arrive at Zechariah's encounter in the temple. Some have suggested there's a 400-year silence time period of the Holy Spirit, similar to that time period before Samuel, where it said the widespread revelation of God was rare. We know it isn't too rare, though. Simeon and Anna know the Messiah is coming, and a whisper is going through the land, and the Messiah was prayed for by the people. People get ready. Jesus, he's coming. He really is. Just not how you think. Everyone knew the Maccabean revolt didn't fulfill the words about the Messiah, and the people prayed for the Messiah to come to relieve them from... Here's the catch. The, the people are praying for relief from their temporary burdens, from their physical demands. They're praying for relief from excessive taxation and brutal treatment by Herod and the Romans. It's interesting. It's not just one evil. It's two that were over them. It's Herod and the Romans. And then there was actually two religious parties that were over them too, the Sadducees or the Pharisees. The religious class was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there was also a group in the country called the Zealots, known for their uprising against authority. There was another group called the Essenes. Much of them is lost to history, but they were the keepers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're the keepers of the traditions, and and there's some research showing that they actually had an early form of baptism, and they were believers in repentance. It's something John the Baptist will be famous for later. So let's cover some of the basics and what the New Testament podcast will look like. Call this a prologue or an introduction. Jesus will come twice, but this is his first coming. And he'll have a primary assignment, and his primary assignment is the cross. Jesus' message is to bring the kingdom, the kingdom of God to earth, a revolutionary concept as the Romans are an anti-kingdom as a republic. But then again, the republic was coming to an end. The rights of the people slowly being stripped from them. Jesus, the Son of God, was around from the beginning. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later, it will say the Word became flesh. He always was around, and the demons knew him, because he always was around. We'll make sure to pull back the veil also as we tell the story. The devil's honestly no match for God. He's, he's no match. Absolutely none. Really, even the angels outnumber the demons two to one. Jesus would walk in authority, and this basically means all evil had to flee around him and do whatever he said, including all evil spirits and demonic strongholds. The only time they defeated him is when he allowed him at the cross. He's approaching the cross, and, and this is at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he he says he could have called upon legions of angels to defend him, but he didn't. Though the Bible doesn't say the word Trinity, the Trinity is all throughout the Bible. 
from the beginning of creation. Jesus walking in the garden from the beginning, Father God speaking to create the world, and the Spirit hovering over the waters. There's many of these events. It's Jesus' baptism. Jesus, the Son, goes in the water. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descending like the dove. The church fathers were excellent at bringing this revelation to us as foundational. There's other, other theological points, and there's a study called hermeneutics. It's a branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation of the Bible. There's seven hermeneutical principles. The last four are lengthy, but the first three are almost the theme of the podcast. Context is number one. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. That's number one. Number two, the test of Scripture must be interpreted in context. Number three, no text of Scripture properly interpreted in its context will contradict another text of Scripture. When contradictions seem to exist, it is the task of the interpreter to explain the seeming contradiction. Interesting, huh? The Scripture explains itself. Just do your homework. And there's a context factor here that's very relevant. It's important we know the culture at the time to understand the mannerisms and the figures of speech Jesus uses, such as when he told the rich man it was harder for a rich man to go to heaven than a camel to go through the eye of the needle. This was a figure of speech. So we'll do our best as we go through the story to dive into these meetings, and at least some of them. Um, I'll even try to get into the Greek, though I'm not a Greek scholar. It's Greek to me. Well... That's just a bad pun, but it's a history pun. Jesus would walk on earth fully man and fully God. The fullness of the Godhead in a humble human form. He would be sinless, completely sinless. sinless. He would openly obey all the law, while in many cases interpret the law different than the leaders of the day. Here's an example. Leviticus 23.3 says the following. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of the Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is the Sabbath to the Lord. The Jewish leaders went so far as to say no one should heal on the Sabbath or basically do anything. Jesus would heal many on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders would say he broke the law. And you can look at it two ways. Healing isn't considered work. Jesus said you would pull out your ox out of a well if it fell on the Sabbath, but they didn't see it that way. The 600-plus Jewish laws taken from the Torah by the Jewish leaders were God sent to them, or should I suggest most of them were control for the sake of control, getting people away from the real purpose of the law and the worship of God. Another way to look at Jesus' treatment of the healing example is the greater law is love. How about this explanation? This is why you pull an ox out of your well on the Sabbath or to heal on the Sabbath. In our vernacular, here's an easier way to look at it. It's illegal to speed in your car, but if your wife is pregnant and about to deliver your child and you're on the way to the hospital, it's not only okay to break the law in speed, and if a police officer pulls you over, he wouldn't only not give you a ticket, but give you a police escort to speed and a permission to speed. The law was created... For your protection. The life of your newborn and wife are more important than the smaller infraction of speeding. Same goes for healing on the Sabbath. Other aka rules would be broken for similar reasons. No doubt Jesus was sinless, 
according to the law as set by God, the rules that he broke were interpretive in nature to make a point to the religious that they weren't obeying the law, they were using the law to control people. Jesus had such a problem with the religious that it seems like the religious were the only guys he really got angry with. I mean, he called them a bread of vipers. He didn't really like the spirit of the Pharisees. God loves everyone and every person created in his image, but he despises the spirit that many of them operate under. Using an old adage, love the sinner, hate the sin. Jesus would be fully obedient in all of his ways. John 5, 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all things. Miracles flowed from the Holy Spirit within him and perfect submission to God and the fullness of faith. Jesus would have a threefold ministry beyond fulfilling the atonement for all mankind. Matthew 4.23 Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And this it explains the, the threefold ministry he had. Teaching, healing, and preaching. He would teach his new truths to everyone through parables. He would heal with miracles, signs, and wonders. And his preaching was proclaiming the kingdom. And as we cover the miracles and ministry of Jesus, we'll try to slip in the gifting list from Apostle Paul that he left us. The Holy Spirit gifts from 1 Corinthians 12. The Father God gifts from Romans 12. And the gifts to the church from Jesus from Ephesians 4. Also, we'll make sure to cover the three sevens of Jesus. The seven times he said, I am the seven final words he said, and the seven kingdom parables. In fact, if you layer them all together, they actually fit nicely together. As for the Gospels, let's cover the perspectives and a bit on the sources real quick. The first three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. They are the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They generally tell the same accounts with a focus on the Galilean ministry. And each of them is different in their own personality and lens. The first one, Matthew... He's the tax collector. He was brilliant. He took exceptional notes. He was an eyewitness to everything. He wrote to the Jews. What I find interesting about Matthew is it kind of like God identified him, and he's going to be the note taker. He's going to have the most about teachings. The Sermon on the Mount, word for word, is right out of Matthew. You know, he's he's the money guy. He's the educated one. He's the one. There, there's other educated ones, but Matthew's the guy who. Jesus saw him, and he goes, now we need to start having someone document the teachings. And, and here's Matthew. He calls upon him. And I find something interesting else about Matthew is he's your tax collector. He's your accountant. He's a guy who should have been in control of the money, but instead Jesus allowed Judas to be in charge of the money. The, the next one's Mark. Mark was a friend of Peter. Um, his writing style is more like Peter's actions. It's quick. It's visual. It's immediate, 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 you find in his gospel. Sometimes immediately are actually followed, um, sometimes between one scene, the immediate word, and the next scene, there's actually two weeks. So it's that immediate right there um, is just almost like it's a, a, 
you know, a period the way he writes, but it's so Peter. It's very quick. It's prompt to, um, it's, there's not a lot of, uh, teachings in it compared to, you know, Mark's style of writing more like Peter's style of thinking. It's like miracle, miracle, deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. The next one's Luke. Uh, Luke is a gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, Luke is a doctor. He's a friend of Paul. Um, he's brilliant as well. He's a doctor by training. He's extremely well educated. He's very well versed in study, and his facts are excellent. Um, he writes his gospel to a Roman. Um, he actually writes Luke, the book of Luke. Part two of actually the book of Luke really is the book of Acts. So he writes in, to a Roman, maybe the one who's actually defending Paul in court or the opposite side. Uh, the synoptic gospels give a more a richer picture because you have these three accounts which layer upon each other. Um, and we'll try to actually cover each account, um, you know, as, it, you know, if it's written by all three of the synoptic gospels, you know, of course, we'll tell the complete story with all of it put together. The Gospel of John's not a synoptic gospel. Most of its scenes are in Jerusalem, which are very different than the other gospels. Um, it was the least number of duplicated scenes compared to the other gospels. Um, John's gospel is, you know, a gospel of royalty, gospel of family. Um, he was, of course, an eyewitness as well. Um, he and Matthew are the only eyewitness accounts we have. Um, some scholars have suggested that John was related to the high priest somehow, for he had, there's so many scenes in Jerusalem, and he had access, you know, to Jesus, uh, or access to, you know, maybe the cross that he had before, and access to other sources that the others didn't have. Um, but John is, you know, he, he's a softy. Like, I mean, he's the one who leans against Jesus, and he's the one who lives the longest, and he's by far the youngest as well. Um, potentially the reason is he, he's considered harmless by the Pharisees is because he was the youngest. I mean, he may have been really young by the time of the Gospels. And he's also one of the original followers of John the Baptist, which ends up following Jesus later. So, you know, John the Apostle um, and, and another one of the, you know, 12 disciples actually follow John the Baptist, and then they leave John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Obviously, we'll be covering the Gospels in chronological order. Um, I'll be using the chronological Bible, if you want to kind of follow along that way. But I may deviate it from here and there. Um, there's other sources I have right in front of me. I have lots of sources uh, just right in front of me. Um, got a cool book someone gave me, uh, Jesus Through the Middle Eastern Eyes. That was pretty sweet. Um, I've got James Usher's Annals of the World to layer in the historical accounts and the Culture Backgrounds Bible. So that's just a couple things right in front of me. Um, yeah, we love watching anything we can find on TV as well. Uh, Bible miniseries, uh, that was by the History Channel some time ago. We love that. Um, also, um, every Christmas we watch the Nativity Story. I mean, how many Christmases in a row we've watched that? Um, but The Chosen, it's on YouTube. Um, that's really excellent. And um, it's kind of an in-depth look that... Um, kind of the ministry of Jesus. I was listening to Rick Renner's podcast the other day on the ministry of Jesus, and he made a statement that if you count the actual days of ministry in the Bible of Jesus and the true actions recorded, there's actually only 35 days. Now, his ministry is, you know, is three and a half years. But if you look at the days recorded of his ministry, 
if you kind of break them down by daily actions, we only have records of 35 days. That's absolutely fascinating to me. And if you layer it in and you remove the duplicates, um, his suggestion was there was only 23 days. Isn't that interesting? And then you consider the verse of John 21, 15. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And in many ways, we're touching on only a fraction of what Jesus did. And what I want to do is take that, that division there, you know, by the accounts, by day, and I want to actually create episodes for each of those days of ministry when we get to the actual ministry time frame. Um, and it's going to be really cool by doing that. Um, obviously, we're, we're missing huge portions in many days of his ministry, uh, but it's going to be really cool to actually subdivide it that way so we can follow this day these events happened. So as you pull back the veil, let's make sure we keep an eye on the players at hand as well. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, rulers, authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's very clear. Um, you can see the powers at work in Israel. They're the religious authorities and the political spirits. Under them was a corrupt, sinful world leader system and system of religion and power. The religious and political spirits are the ones who end up conspiring to kill Jesus. The first one of these is Rome, the Gentile militaristic conqueror and foreigner with power. Below Rome is Herod, the political spirit and king with wealth but not true power. And the religious spirits, the Sadducees, the liberal religious group, they denied spiritual things but they lost power to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they're the ruling class, accountable religion, but without a true spiritual authority. They actually needed permission to commit acts like, you know, when they want to try to try Jesus, they can't actually put him to death. I find it interesting. Two in each case make sure of accountability. Even evil can be held accountable to evil. I find it interesting how they play against each other. Because the Pharisees had no right to put anyone to death, they had to go to Pilate to put Jesus to death. Well, Pilate didn't want to do it, so he sent him to Herod, who refused to do it. Then Pilate, afraid of a rebellion of the Jews, gives in to them and agrees to his death. And it's interesting to me how the multiple evil spirits were still accountable to each other. The fears of one play against the other and create outcomes in the case to fulfill prophecy. As for the lesser principalities, we'll try to pull back the veil as well. As Jesus heals the demoniac at the Gadarenes, he actually overthrew a principality over a region. We'll try to keep this periodic perspective. You know, obviously, when David killed Goliath, everything shifted. When Jesus provides deliverance, everything shifts in the spirit as well. He won the battle in the spirit without violence every time. The only violence was the violence he allowed to be done to himself. Another thing to consider is the travels of the territory that Jesus covers in his three-year ministry in his lifetime. Life in Israel evolved around the primary feast, and three of these require pilgrimages to Jerusalem, Passover in the spring, 50 days later at Pentecost, and tabernacles in the fall. 
These dictate Jesus' itinerary, and we can't miss these and the hidden messages during each of these times. As for the timing of releases for the podcast, uh, we're not going to do every week. That's just too much. Uh, but I think we can, we got the bandwidth. We're going to, we're going to plan for podcast every two weeks. Um, if it goes longer or if it's earlier, uh, that might just happen. But the plan is every two weeks we'll release a podcast um, through, you know, through the cross. All right, we end this episode with more on Jesus. And that's pretty much all we're really going to be talking about the next year. I'm so thankful we've arrived here. We end the episode with the amazingly powerful verse about Jesus from 1 Colossians. I can't tell you how much this verse it means to me, and I'll just load you up with it and leave you here to be prepared where we're headed. It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus 101 in Colossians. Colossians 1.15 The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, for making peace through his blood shed on the cross.